May God add his blessing to the reading of the scripture this morning, and may the words from my mouth be just what we all need to hear. There was once a young businessman in Germany, and this was shortly after World War II. His name was Neckerman. Neckerman wanted to build his little store that he had into a big chain of stores. He had a dream. But the problem was nobody had ever heard of him or Nickerman's store. He couldn't attract customers and he didn't have a lot of capital to advertise and uh, all the things that it sometimes takes to grow your business. And as I said, this was shortly after World War II and there were shortages of everything in Germany. The big stores saw no reason to cut prices and so they sold whatever they could get at very big profits. And Neckerman saw this as an opportunity. He wanted his store to become a low-cost, high-value leader in the industry so that he could make his dream happen and have a chain of stores. Well, it just so happened that he managed to buy himself a big shipment of spools of thread. Thread was a big commodity then. It was in great demand because clothes were in very short supply and so people, instead of buying new clothes because they couldn't get them, one and two times were difficult, they would just repair what they had. If you had a hole in your jeans, you just patched it up. And for, to do that, you would need thread. So you'd think that Neckerman would just take these spools of thread and put them in his store and sell them, right? But he had a better idea. He took this whole shipment of spools of thread that he'd purchased to the buyer of one of the biggest department stores in the country. And the buyer for this chain of department stores jumped at the chance to buy this thread and resold it very, in a very short period of time at a huge profit. Well, you, it sounds like he's really lost something there, doesn't it? Until you hear the rest of the story. It took a little bit of time for those people to take that thread home and use up that spool. So the whole deal was forgotten. By the time the people of the large department store chain began to notice that a lot of their business was going Neckerman's way. They were noticing that crowds of people were shopping at Neckerman's instead of their store. And soon they figured out why. It was the spools of thread that they had bought from Neckerman. As German housewives would finish the spools of thread, a piece of paper that had been wrapped around the spool underneath all of the thread would fall out. And on this little slip of paper, he had written these words. If you had bought this thread at Neckerman's, it would have lasted twice as long. Well, overnight, people began to shop and Neckerman made himself a name. From then on, he had plenty of customers. Shrewd, sneaky. Sometimes in business, the line between what's ethical and what's unethical is a little bit blurred. And nice guys or girls don't always finish first in the business world. It's sad that all's fair in love and war. That's sometimes true in business as well. And the small Ask any small retailer these days. Ask any small retailer who was put out of business. We've had many of them. 
because of the big superstores, the chains that have come. Ask shareholders who lost their pension because some greedy executive at the top of the food chain manipulated stock prices and they lost their retirement funds. Be careful. You have to be careful if you're in business or personal business, with your personal business. You never know when somebody who's shrewd and unethical is going to cheat you. It's always been that way, but it seems to be getting worse. Jesus knew this. He knew that dishonest people existed. He talked about a dishonest guy in this parable. And here's the part that shocks me when I read it and that it's taken me a long time to get past and try to figure out. Jesus had words of praise for this guy, for what he had done. You understand what he did, right? Well, the story is, there was a rich man who had a manager who was cooking the books. He was filling his own pockets with the rich man's money. And the rich man found out and he gave him his pink slip. But he didn't make him leave immediately. He kept him around for a little longer. And so the soon-to-be unemployed manager was afraid, as he should be. He said to himself, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how to do manual labor. And I'm too ashamed to beg, so I'm not going to do that. What can I do? Well, then he made a plan. He decided to use the time he had left with his employer to meet with the people, one by one, who owed his boss money. And he would ask them, how much do you owe my boss? One guy said, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said, make it 50. This is a good example, by the way of why some employees shouldn't be given two weeks' notice. Then he asked another customer, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 containers of wheat. He said, make it 80. Now, here's the unbelievable part of the story. According to Jesus, the rich man complimented his dishonest manager for what he'd done. And then Jesus added these interesting words. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. This is disturbing. Maybe even outrageous. Jesus praising a dishonest man. I thought we were supposed to be honest. What in the world was he, why was he saying this? What could this mean? Well, first of all, understand that he is not praising the man's dishonesty. Jesus praised a dishonest man, but we can see it in the words that follow that his dishonesty was not what he was praising. He said, whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Jesus clearly was not complimenting him because he was being unfair or dishonest. We don't need any more dishonest people in this world. That's for sure. 
We don't need dishonest business people. We don't need dishonest lawyers. We don't need dishonest doctors. We don't need dishonest clergy or whatever the profession might be. Everyone loses. Everybody loses when people cheat and when people steal. Harry Emerson Fosdick, one of the great preachers of all times, wrote a formula. And he called it six ways to tell right from wrong. And his suggestion was that we test what we're thinking about doing. If we're thinking about stealing from the boss, or whatever it might be. If you're thinking about doing, six ways to test it. Number one, common sense test. Are you, are you just being foolish? How would you judge, what would you think if you heard that someone else was going to do this thing that you're thinking about doing? Number two, the sportsmanship test. Are you playing fair? How would you feel if somebody else did this to you? If it's not right for everybody, it's probably not right for anybody. Number three, the best self-test. Are you trying to be the best you can be? Will it help you to become a better person? Number four, the publicity test. If everybody knew what you were doing, would you still do it? The, number five, the most admired person test. Think of the person that you most admire in this world. Do you think they would do it? Or if you told them about it, would you feel proud? Or would you feel ashamed about what you're thinking of doing? And then finally, test number six, the foresight test. What could possibly go wrong? Could you live with what the consequences could possibly be if you went through with what it is you're thinking of doing. That's good practical advice. Jesus was not praising this man's dishonesty. Remember something. This is a parable. It's a made-up story. Now, Bible scholars tell us that a parable only has, you might be able to draw some other conclusions from it, but it only has one main lesson. Jesus was always trying to get one thing across to the people he was speaking to. I believe that Jesus is praising this man's, not his dishonesty, but his willingness to do something. He was about to lose his job. He knew he wasn't strong enough to work as a laborer. He didn't want to beg. What was he going to do? Well, what could he have done? He could have done nothing. He could have sat around worrying about it. Oh, I'm so unlucky. Woe is me. I never catch a break. Always something. Many times, don't we do that? Don't we react to hardships like that? Poor me. What can I do? I'll just sit here and sulk. One guy described it like this. When a person loses their job, sometimes some folks react to losing a job like this in different stages. Stage one, oh, it's okay, I'll make a few phone calls and I'll be working again in no time, no problem. And then they go to stage two. Well, none of these jobs that are available are good enough for me. And then they go to stage three and they say, geez, I'm not qualified for any of these jobs. But the house sure is clean now since I'm home all the time. And then they go to stage four. 
Maybe I'll try a whole new career. I got to put something on my unemployment claim this week. And then stage five, I can't find anything. I'm going to weave hats out of palm branches and sell them on the beach. I'd rather be my own boss anyway. And then stage six, you'll pay me how much? Oh, I've always wanted to work with other people and be part of a team. And they accept the job. The dishonest manager could have gone home and he could have spent his days watching TV. He could have waited around for somebody to give him a break. That's the first thing he could have done. Nothing. The second thing he could have done was another thing that we sometimes do. He could have asked God to solve his problem for him. We have to be very careful here. It sounds very pious to say, I'm just going to pray about this, and if God wants me to work, God will provide me a job. And then we wait for a job to come to us. I've known people who have this kind of an attitude. They may not even include God, but they're waiting for that job to come to them. They're waiting for their phone to ring rather than ringing, calling someone else. It sounds like a, such a nice religious idea to just wait for God to give you that job that you really want. Waiting for God to supply your need. But may I suggest it is also sometimes a way of avoiding responsibility. And it can be harmful. It can be harmful to you personally, professionally, and spiritually. It's like saying, if God wants me to lose weight, God will keep me from craving ice cream. It's crazy. Or better yet, if God doesn't want me to stop at the bakery and have a couple donuts, there won't be a parking place in front of the place when I drive by. You heard about the one guy that prayed that prayer, and then he uh, pulled up, and sure enough, there was a parking place. It only took him six times around the block. The little saying, God helps those who help themselves, isn't in the Bible, but I wish it was, because there's a lot of truth to it. Dwight L. Moody was one of the world's greatest preachers, too. Once he was on a ship that was crossing the Atlantic, and the ship caught fire. And the crew and the passengers got together and formed a bucket brigade to put out the fire to get the water to the fire. One man in the line said, Mr. Moody, you and I are very important people. Don't you think we should leave this line and go down, go down below and pray? Mr. Moody's answer was, you can go and pray if you want to but I'm going to pray while I pass the buckets. That was the right answer. He understood the relationship between prayer and personal responsibility. Yes, we should pray and ask God for things we need, but then we should do what we can. Jesus praised the dishonest manager because he had a problem and he immediately took action to solve it. Jesus follows this parable with these words, which kind of give us a clue to what it's meaning. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Who are the children of light? We are. Us, you and I. But listen carefully. The children of light can actually be very frustrating to God and their friends when they refuse to try to help themselves. Even worse, 
when they use their religion as an excuse for not doing something. And it may sound a little harsh, but it happens often. There are people who are ruining their health, ruining their relationships, ruining their careers, waiting for God to give them some kind of a sign before they do anything. Do you remember what Jesus had to say about this? It's kind of surprising. He said, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. The context was a little different there, but the point is the same. We can avoid all kinds of responsibility by sitting back and waiting for God to talk to us when sometimes we're just not listening. God is speaking, but we're not listening. Pray about your situation positively. I hope that by now, after over six years, you know that I feel that prayer is of utmost importance in all of our lives. So pray, yes. But then use the good brain that God gave you and tackle the problem. Tackle it head on. That's the way to deal with life, whether in business or family life or your health or, yes, right here in this church. We have issues. The issue is that church, our church, like, like all churches, attendance is declining. Like all churches. We're no different than anybody else. Attendance is declining. Things aren't what they used to be. We don't fill the place up and have chairs in the aisle. Don't look for that to happen anytime soon, okay? Our culture has changed. Our society has changed. What can we do about that? Well, we're working very hard on that these days. I, over the weekend, uh, I had an a, uh, opportunity, and Jerry and Arnie had an opportunity to take part in an online uh, conference which took place, which was extremely helpful with, helpful with some wonderful ideas and some very good thoughts as far as the future of not only our church, but all churches everywhere. We're beginning to look at some of these ideas and these thoughts, and we'll bring them to life in the days to come. But we have to change. Doesn't mean we have to completely change and stop doing everything the way we do it and you know, tear the building down and build a new one. But it means that we have to change with our community and with our society. And the church, as a result, is going to look different in the years to come. And so we began to transition as much, however we all agree that we have been led by the Lord to transition. So there's something to be said about asking God for guidance and then following that guidance and using our heads, analyzing what's going on in the world, what we're doing here, does it match up? If it does not, then make some changes so that it will, so that we'll be appealing to people, so that they will, those who have been gone for a long time will come back, those who uh, have not been a part of this family will become part of this family. That's what God wants us to do. Like this man in this parable, use our heads. That's why God gave us brains. Tackle the problem. The children of this age, the people outside the church walls, sometimes are smarter than we are about these things. So take a lesson from some of them. 
Some things that are done in the business world make so much more sense than some of the things we do, which oftentimes in many churches is nothing. We just think we're going to continue to function like a church did 40 years ago, and we're going to grow and prosper. Obviously, it does not work that way. And so let's use our heads. There was a philosopher who once told about a make-believe country where only ducks lived. And on Sunday morning, all the ducks would come into church. They'd waddle down the aisle, they'd waddle into their pews, and they'd sit down. And then the duck minister would come in. He would take his place behind the pulpit. He would open the duck Bible, and he would read, Ducks, you have wings, and with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. Ducks, you have wings. All the ducks would say, Amen, we have wings. And then when church was over, they would waddle home. Nobody ever flew. There's just too much truth to that little fable. It's time for us, the children of light, to stop waddling. It's time for us to soar. If there's something that you and I need to do to help make things better, it's time for us to do it. It's time to go into action. No more wringing our hands and saying, oh no, we're not going to have a church in 20 years if everything keeps going the way it's going. No. No more what will we do, what will we do. Let's figure out what we will do. No more praying that God will solve our problems for us and free us from all the responsibility. May we be people that Jesus compliments. Why? Because we saw something that needed to be done, and we did it. Amen.